chapter five. Verses 27 through 39. In our journey through the gospel, according to Luke, we've come to this place and um, we rejoice and give thanks that the doctor continues to have good news. As we think of the gospel of grace that utterly transforms lives is impacting the world unlike any other compendium of information that ever has. Let's look together in God's word. Luke chapter five, beginning with verse 27. Hear the word of God as I read it aloud. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call the righteous, not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. May the Lord bless this reading of his words. We give him praise for it. And thanks. Who remembers Y2K? Who remembers all of those doomsday prophets who said that because computers were programmed only to recognize the two last digits of the year, said that come January the 1st, 2000, that is 00, that our whole infrastructure would collapse. I had people who were telling me that I needed to preach a series of sermons on that to, in order to get people prepared, how that they needed to get large water containers and stashes of food and pull them together. Well, I've never been shy at telling people that I am not the sharpest knife in the drawer. And I would never profess to be extremely knowledgeable about things like that. But I did have enough sense to know that our entire calendar is oriented the way that it is and that it was coming up on the year 2000 because it was in recognition of 2,000 years since the Lord Jesus Christ had come. Now, we know the calendar is a little bit off, and so, you know, more or less. But the point is, it's oriented around the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I saw it not as a cause to dread what may happen on New Year's Day, but a reason to celebrate. And so I launched into a series on the gospel according to John in celebration of our Lord Jesus Christ 2,000 years 
since his coming. I'm thankful to report that the world was not destroyed on New Year's Day 2000, and we continued along in that study. Well, Jesus transforms lives. He has completely reoriented our world and its way of thinking. Even those who vehemently deny his true identity have nevertheless been impacted by his life. It is unavoidable. And we realize as we look at this passage of Scripture that Jesus told us that he was ushering in an entirely new way of life and that regardless of who had held forth had captivated the attention of people who had accomplished all the various things that they would accomplish, we can be assured that when Jesus is teaching, the doctor is in. Now, chronologically, the passage that we are reading may not have necessarily fallen right on the heels of what precedes it, but let's remember that historians of old didn't write in the same way and for the same purposes that they do today. Luke had points he wanted to emphasize with regard to the ministry and the teaching of the Lord Jesus. So let's just look at this passage as it comes to us. It says, after this, he went out at some point following the things that precede. He saw a tax collector named Levi. Now, everybody saw tax collectors. You couldn't avoid them. After all, they were in a part of the world where this was a main highway or thoroughfare, a trading route. And so everybody saw these people in their booths who were collecting these uh, taxes that were to be extracted from people who were carrying goods for trade to various places. But Jesus saw him. Those of us who have come to know Christ as our Savior have been assured that he has seen us, that his eyes have beheld us, that he has placed his gaze upon us. Otherwise, how else would we be in this glorious condition of, of being rescued by grace? Jesus saw him, saw him not in the way that the rest of the world saw him, but Jesus saw in him the one that he intended to choose for his disciple along with others. You see, he calls people based on his purposes, not according to our own preconceived notions. One commentator, Norville Geldenheis, has said it this way, because tax collectors were seen as collaborators with the Roman occupiers and hirelings of the despised Herod Antipas, they were regarded as outcasts and outrageous sinners. The point is, no one in his right mind, seemingly, would choose a tax collector to be any person of influence whatsoever because they were so despised in that part of the world. They were seen as traitors, people who had sold themselves out to the Romans to serve the purposes of the Romans, betrayers of their own people, high treasoners against their own people. You wouldn't call somebody like that. Well, Jesus had a purpose for Levi, otherwise known as Matthew, that couldn't be seen by the world. And so we take confidence in that Jesus knows what he's doing and that his ways are above our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts. We see in this also that he calls disciples individually to a life of submission and learning from him. Each disciple had his own unique experience of Jesus calling him. And each of us who knows Christ has had our own unique experience of him 
coming to us, as he has been revealed to us by the Holy Spirit, our eyes having been opened to things that we couldn't see otherwise, our minds being opened to things that we couldn't understand otherwise, and that he has called us individually. Yes, he has saved us into his church so that we're a part of not only this company gathered here, and not only gathered into that great number that extends throughout the whole world, but even into that great company that we are a part of now by faith that has gone before us into glory, yet each of that vast number he has called individually as he called Levi. Very simply saying to him as he looked at him, follow me. Now, the gospel has been preached in many ways, and people have various understanding of what it means. But let's understand this. The essence of being a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ can't be summarized just by having a once upon a time experience in Sunday school or vacation Bible school or a worship service or a revival meeting. The essence of being a disciple of the Lord Jesus is characterized by these two words. Follow me. Those who are believers in the Lord Jesus are those who have given up life as we know it, in order to follow the one who is worth following. It is the first command that's given to us in the gospel according to Mark. Right after Jesus calling people to repentance, the command that he issued forth is, as we have here, follow me. Are you following him? Now, there's a difference between following the Lord Jesus and being curious about him or even having profound affection for him or deep respect for him. We can have those things and yet not be followers. Levi left everything behind in order to follow the Lord Jesus. And let's face it, he was a part of a lucrative occupation. He's doing all right for himself. Levi was not only extracting taxes from those people who were there in that area, but he was able to keep a portion of it for himself. Many of them kept a greater portion than they needed to keep. And so they were padding their pocketbooks every day. It was a very lucrative trade. And he left it, left it behind in order to follow Jesus. And that's one of the things that we see also is that we see in the Lord Jesus so much more than anything this world has to offer us. I trust and pray you've come to that place. I trust and pray that you're here today because you're rejoicing and giving thanks that your eyes too have been opened, that having heard the Master's call, you are willing to give up all and everything in order to have him. Again, recalling to mind those words that we saw a couple of weeks ago from Jim Elliott. He is no fool who will give up that which he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. So many people today are holding on to things that they are not going to take with them. Now, I preached that, and somebody reminded me. They said, you know, I've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. I actually have. <laughs> There's a photograph on the wall of a funeral home director in, uh, in North Carolina that is a picture of a hearse pulling a U-Haul. And he loves to point that out to people. But the principle still holds, right? It doesn't matter what was in that trailer. The person in the hearse was not taking it with them beyond the grave. We don't take any of this stuff with us when we go. But if you know Jesus, you have him always. Whatever Levi understood at that moment, whatever 
childlike understanding he had of who this man was standing before him, he realized that in Jesus was someone, something worth having. And whatever else he was holding on to in this world was not worth holding on to. Follow me, says Jesus. And so we hear those words, too. Now, he's there. And he leaves and he follows Jesus and being so thankful for what Jesus has done, he makes him a great feast in his house. And there were a bunch of people there, a great company of other tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. That sounds wonderful to us. But to the Pharisees and their scribes, this was not anything to brag about. They grumbled. They grumbled at his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? How could you be like that? Well, as we talked about before, one of the things that, or rather the thing that qualifies us to be a follower of Jesus and an object of his saving grace is to be someone with a need. We are not in the kingdom of God today because any of us has anything to offer that would commend us to the Lord. We are here because we've recognized that we have need. Unfortunately, these religious leaders did not necessarily see themselves as those with a need. They rather chose to judge those who were following Christ and they judged Christ himself. And so Jesus makes clear in this interaction that he has come for those who know that they need him. Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, Paul makes a point of uh, belaboring the fact that we are sinners, regardless of what our religious heritage may be. In Romans chapter 3. Beginning with verse 9, he says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. And then he goes through this litany, quoting from the Old Testament. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Do you get the point? Or as he summarizes later, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are in no position whatsoever to commend ourselves unto the Savior because of our righteousness. We have only our sin. And so the Pharisees were making this grievous mistake in thinking themselves to be better in terms of righteousness than the people who were gathering with Jesus. Rather than seeing their own need and joining with them, they chose to distance themselves from them. I had somebody say recently in a conversation as I was talking to them, you know, I'm always hesitant to tell people what I do for a living. It always changes the conversation, you know, and not always in a helpful way. 
And so I usually try to put it off as long as I can in talking to them in order to be able to have a conversation. Because as soon as it comes out that I'm a pastor, oh, it just changes everything. And uh, telling a lady at the grocery store just this week when she was asking me what I did, and I, had, you know, I told her, told her I was pastoring. And uh, I said, you ought to come over there sometime. And she said, oh, you think it would be okay if I came? I said, look, ma'am, they're letting me preach there. Just look. <laughs> if I get to walk through the door and stand in the pulpit, you are certainly welcome to come and be a part of that. And I wasn't saying that just to be funny. And that's a humorous comment. I get it. I try to put people at ease about things like that. But I just see it as true. Every Sunday morning I get up and at some point very early in getting ready to come here, the thought comes, who do you think you are? That may come from my own sense of inadequacy. It may come from the enemy. I don't know who it comes from. But the fact is, look, we're all in this together. We have all fallen short of God's glory. And we can rejoice in knowing that Jesus has come to save sinners. And yet, perhaps, in the course of our Christian life, we reach a place of supposed maturity that we can easily find ourselves in the same position of these Pharisees. Where we, rather than seeing the need in people and their need of a Savior and thus praying for them, that we might actually have an attitude of, who are they? We look down our pious noses at others. Be careful. Be so very careful. And they wanted to know not only, you know, why is this man gathering with these unclean people, these sinners? But um, in terms of uh, this gathering, why this celebrating? After all, even the disciples of John the Baptist, as well as those of the Pharisees, of course, They fast. Why are they not fasting? And Jesus responds, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? There's a place for fasting. There's a place of doing without, of depriving ourselves in order to recognize that there are things that we need more than bread. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Fasting is a way that we can help remind ourselves of that and and do away with not just food. There are other ways that we can fast, you know, turning off the television or staying away from the, the Internet for a while. Any number of things that we can give up to remind ourselves that the one we really need is God. But there's also a place for celebrating. There are times to fast and there are times to feast. So Jesus said, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Now, first of all, let's point out that what a wonderful thing it is that Jesus identifies himself as the bridegroom, because the presupposition here is that he loves his church. Being the bridegroom, he loves the bride. Oh, how thankful I am. Knowing of my own failures and faults and all of the things that would forever separate me from God. And yet, by his grace, he has counted me as his own. And among the ways that he describes his relationship with us is this one. He is the bridegroom and we are the bride. And inherent in that description is one of love. But beyond that, in his presence, there is celebration. 
in consideration of who he is and what he accomplishes for us, there is a need to express joy. That's one of the hallmarks of true Christianity. After all, it is a part of the fruit of the Spirit. Remember, love, joy, peace, patience, and so forth. We've got the joy, 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 joy down in our hearts. Where? Down in my heart. We sing that in Bible school. We ought to keep singing that. Why do we leave those songs behind the way that we often do? Oh, that's a, that's a child song. I'll tell you right now, that's one of my favorite songs. I think that's profound. We have joy because Christ has come. And so there's a place in the Christian life for rejoicing, a huge place in the Christian life for rejoicing. Now, is there a place for mourning and grieving? Of course. When we consider our sins and our ongoing tendency to sin against God, of course, there should be repentance and sorrow and remorse. And there's a place for fasting. But let's understand there needs to be a balance in these things, whatever else we draw from the words of the Lord Jesus here. Thank God he's given us reason to rejoice. Further, we see in his teaching that he comes to give new life, not merely to patch us up and give us a fresh set of ideas. Jesus, in teaching them, gives them a parable. First of all, he tells them one of these days the bridegroom is going to be taken away. There will be cause for fasting then. But he goes on and describes this coming of God's kingdom in the way that it has in his own person in this way. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Because if he does, you will have torn the new one. And by putting that piece on the old one, you're not going to be any better off because it's not going to match. It's going to be clearly a piecemeal job. Jesus didn't come to do anything piecemeal. He came to do things in a completely new way. Second Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You're a completely different person in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has transformed you. Now, your personality is still intact. Who you are is still there. But nevertheless, your identity is completely different. He's making all things new. He's transforming us day by day. He told Nicodemus, you must be born again. That's a declaration of this new life. We call it regeneration. It's a transformation that only the Spirit of God can effect. He's not telling you that a New Year's Day has come and he wants you to come up with a, a list of uh, things you're going to do, resolutions you're going to undertake. He comes to do the work to change us. We're completely new. He's not just patching us up here and there. And he goes on to describe it also as he makes use of an analogy of Bottles in the King James Version or wine skins, these containers that were made from animal skins for the purpose of holding wine. It's a pretty simple illustration. No one puts new wine into old wine skins. Why not? Because the old wine skins are rigid. They become somewhat old and dry, being made from animal skins. And so that wine that's in there fermenting, you know, it's working. That fermentation process causes an expansion. You know, how many of you have dropped a can of soda on the ground and picked it up and opened it up and been sprayed by it or had a quote-unquote good friend who has shaken it 
Now, I'm not suggesting anyone in here has ever done that. But you realize those contents are under pressure. So if you've got a rigid wine skin with this fermenting going on in there, it's not going to be able to contain the substance. That, that substance in there is going to break loose. It's going to spill out on the ground and it's going to ruin the container. Jesus is saying that when he comes and gives new life, the old ways of thinking, the old way of living is not inadequate. It is inadequate. New wine must be put into new wineskins. So the Pharisees, holding to their old-time religion, holding to their legalistic way of thinking, had lives that couldn't contain what Jesus was offering They, like all others, needed a whole new life that could contain this glorious working of the Holy Spirit. Again, we can look at the Pharisees judgmentally, but we also can become rigid like that. Rather than rejoicing in the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus, recognizing that the Holy Spirit transforms lives, we can fall into thinking, well, Christianity is you know, following this set of rules and that set of rules. Becoming rigid. Be careful. This new way of living that Jesus has ushered in requires new forms of expression. And so all of those gathered there rejoicing in the presence of Jesus were not to be judged with something to take notice of. Something new is happening. The Messiah has come. The old is passing away. A new covenant is being established. And oh, the rejoicing that is ours who have trusted in him. We need to recognize that typically what people, especially religious people, prefer is different from what is actually needed. No one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good, or it could read the old is better. Now, of course, those of you who are connoisseurs of such things might say, well, of course, old wine is better. But here, Jesus is not talking about that. He's talking about how much better the new and fresh is as opposed to the old. But because we're creatures of habit, because we're prone to be used to things and we resist change, we can simply say, no, I like the way things are. I like them the way they used to be. Now, again, that's not altogether bad either. There are things we've done in the past. I wish we would go back to doing them that way. But when it comes to matters of grace and the working of salvation, we don't want to go back to the old covenant. We don't want to go back to some form of legalism. Some. Well, look at it this way. Aren't you glad when you came to church this morning you didn't have to drag a goat or a bull or a lamb Aren't you glad that I'm not up here with others butchering those things and placing them on an altar and going through that drudgery that happened day after day after day after day because the work of the priest was never finished? And here is one who has come who will finish it. One sacrifice offered once for all. Why would any of us want to go back to that? Why would we want to regress rather than progress in the grace of God? Romans 6, 4 says, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. There's no water here. Don't be thinking to yourselves, why is a Presbyterian quoting from this passage? This justifies 
baptism by immersion. This is not talking about water baptism. Even leading Baptist scholars will tell us that. Talking about that which is brought to us by the Holy Spirit. We're buried, therefore, with him by baptism in the death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. What's he saying? The old has passed away. Our old person has died with Christ as surely as he was crucified on the cross. He takes that old nature there and we are to die to that old nature so that we can be raised up to walk in a new life. Why would we want to revert to something that is imperfect when we have something that is so wonderful? Again, turning to Romans, this time chapter 12, to wrap this up quickly. Romans chapter 12 and beginning with verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. A life of a disciple is a life of transformation. It is the Lord Jesus leading us so that we are experiencing newness of life, a freshness of experience with grace. Like Thursday evening, when, uh, when Dave was teaching on Ephesians, I've been through that book so many times, and yet, as we were there, you know, I, I felt like a kid in a candy store. It's like everywhere we looked in that passage was something so wonderful and so incredible. I didn't know whether to grab a handful of that or a handful of this and start stuffing my pockets. That's how I felt. That truth was so wonderful. I don't care how many times we can be in a passage of God's word like that. When we're a believer and the Holy Spirit is working in us, it is fresh and new and there's something to learn there all the time. This book, this Bible is a treasure trove. It is God's living word, and there is so much here for us. I hope it's like that for you. As we're being transformed, as the Spirit of God is working in us, such that an old wineskin can't hold it, a little patch isn't, significant, isn't sufficient. <laughs> it's a whole new life that we have in the Lord Jesus. A whole new way of living. Someone to follow. Someone to experience. I shared it a couple of times this week, and I did on a video this morning, but I, I just want to pay tribute to a friend. Pastor Jack Robinson, who went home to be with the Lord this past week, they had his funeral service at Grandview Baptist Church on Friday. Just a dear brother in the Lord. I think of the time as I've shared. He was up on a ridgetop as a boy looking down, and he saw his grandmother go in the spring house. Spring house was the place where they had built a little building, you know, where a spring came up out of the ground. They didn't have refrigeration in his time and in that place, and so that's how they kept, especially their things like their milk and buttermilk and other things, cold in that spring water. She'd gone in there to get something. I don't remember now what he said it was. And he was looking down there, and he saw her come out the door, and all at once her hands flew up in the air, and she shouted. He thought something was wrong. He went running down there. Grandma, what's wrong? She said, nothing's wrong, son. She said, I was in there and I just got to thinking about how good God is and how he saved a sinner like me and I just had to shout hallelujah. Now you might 
look down your pious nose and say, well, clearly she wasn't Presbyterian. And she wasn't. And we all have a different expression. Perhaps you're someone who's given to an outward expression like that. Perhaps you really are someone who is content with that inward joy that Christ gives. But if you know the Lord Jesus, there's no escaping that joy over that new life that he gives. Christ has come. And he is so much better than anything else this world has to offer. There is none like him. And so, Christians, I hope the joy is so great that body that the Lord has given you can't contain it. And all the world will see as we rejoice together in our Savior who has come to save sinners. That's our qualification, remember? You're filling out your resume. Why is it that God should accept me? There's only one thing on it. Sinner. That's all right, because those are the people he's come for. Bless his name. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you, O God, for a Savior so wonderful and so glorious that our minds can't begin to contain this knowledge that is so too wonderful for us. And so bless us, dear Father, that by your grace, inasmuch as the things spoken here have been in harmony with your word, that we might never get away from them. If anything has been said that is out of accord with your word, let it quickly pass from our minds. But renew us, we ask you. Bless us that we may grow in the knowledge of grace to rejoice all the more in all that Jesus has done, is doing, and will do for us. In his name we pray. Amen. Our concluding hymn is, In My Life Be Glorified. It's a prayer. Let's stand together and sing and offer it to the Lord just in that way. And so may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And may the Lord lift up unto you his countenance and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. And everyone said together. <laughs>